This podcast series is brought to you from the University of Winchester. We invite you to listen in as we talk with both academics and practitioners about their approaches to peace building and conflict transformation, discussing some of the most complex and pressing challenges we face in the world today. Hello, my name is Anna King and I'm Professor of Religious Studies and Social Anthropology in the University of Winchester. Today I'm speaking to a great scholar and a very good friend, Dr. Elizabeth Harris, who's an honorary fellow in the Edward Cadbury Centre, University of Birmingham. Um, So welcome to all who are listening. Um, So my first question to you, Liz, is, I know that you've had a very long career of engagement in so many different disciplines, but you're also an activist, someone actively involved in interreligious dialogue, particularly between Buddhists and Christians. Um, how could you? T- how can you tell us how you come to be this interdisciplinary? Well, thanks, Anna. Um, I think activism came first. Uh, my first passion was encouraging intercultural encounter and learning. Um, I trained as a teacher of English when I, when I was a young person and taught in Jamaica in my mid-twenties. And in Jamaica, I felt I received much more than I gained. Um, and I wanted, uh, much more than I gave, I should say. Um, I wanted to encourage others to do the same, um, eschewing kind of Western superiority. So after teaching in Brent and Harrow for about four years on my return, I began working for the organization that had recruited me for the government of Jamaica. It was called Christians Abroad. And my job was to encourage others to think of a time overseas, kind of learning from other cultures and doing some work as well. Um, But it was in this job that I first became aware of interreligious activity. Um, It was happening in different parts of Britain in response to Britain's um, growing religious diversity. And um, I joined my local interfaith group. I joined the World Conference on Religion and Peace. Um, And I came to realize that was crossing barriers of religion was just as important, if not more important, than intercultural encounter. The two kind of came together. Then in 1984, I visited Sri Lanka, um, during which I can only say that I had an encounter with the Buddha, um, a religious experience that I, I now look back on as pivotal, because it primed me to say yes when I heard that an institute in Colombo was inviting Christians from the West or others to come to study Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And I did in 1986. Uh, so this was the kind of second phase. The first phase was the um, you know, growing into interreligious relations. The second was going to Sri Lanka um, to study Buddhism. And I went on the World Council of Churches Scholarship and studied at the Postgraduate Institute of Pali and Buddhist Studies in Colombo. And I thought I'd be there for a year doing a postgraduate diploma in Buddhist studies. Mm-hmm. I stayed for nearly eight years. Mm-hmm. There was a long break in Britain in the middle to raise money to go back. And Sri Lanka made me into an academic. Or rather, it was Dr. Aloysius Pieris, SJ, indologist mm-hmm. and liberation theologian, um, who made me, made me into an academic by encouraging me to go beyond my MA in Buddhist studies to a PhD. Mm. And he also asked me to be his research assistant. Mm. Um, I had to come back to Britain to gain money for all of this. Um, 
and even suggested the theme of my, my doctorate, um, the representation of Buddhism in the writings of the British people who came to Sri Lanka during colonialism, including mm. the missionaries. Mm. There was an agenda behind this because he was very well aware that there was mistrust between Buddhists and Christians in Sri Lanka, which had its roots in colonialism, and he, he wanted me to study it and to study the whole encounter between the British and Buddhism at that time. But um, also important for my study of Buddhism in Sri Lanka was that it combined different disciplines and was carried out in the context of violence and ethnic war, which included thousands of deaths while I was there. Mm. Studied the, I studied Pali, I studied the texts, but applied these to the context. So my MA dissertation was on what the Pali text said about violence and disruption in society. Mm. And so on. So, and that's quite important for my later development. But I, I left Sri Lanka in 1993, came back to Britain, and then entered the thir third phase, which um, was working um, with, with a research fellowship at Westminster College, Oxford. And the two years I spent there was really a crash course in method in the study of religion or religious studies. My main teacher was Peggy Morgan, mm. um, an absolutely <laughs> wonderful proponent of religious studies and very important in the religious studies scene. And that was the, the icing on the cake in terms of making me an academic. I joined the British Association for the Study of Religion, gave papers at their conferences, and so on and so on. Um, but then I did something that some people in religious studies thought was a complete betrayal. I became the National Interfaith Officer for the Methodist Church in Britain. Mm. Throughout my 11 years doing this, I continued to do academic research and to teach in some higher education context as a visiting lecturer. But why take up this job? And it was because of the activist side of me. I was passionate that Christians should engage with other religious traditions not with a sense of superiority, but with, with a wish to learn, to mm. collaborate, to cooperate. Mm. Um, and through encouraging an accurate portrayal of other religious traditions and a less exclusivist reading of Christian texts, I wanted Christians to become more open and less susceptible to supersessionism and superiority feelings and all this kind of thing. And the job led me into encounter with most religious traditions in Britain, not just Buddhism, all of them, and much further into the field of religion and conflict, um, because giving advice on this was part of my job. So I went to Israel and Palestine, to Pakistan, to South Africa, and began, began to see kind of common patterns in places where religion was a factor in conflict. When I returned to academia in 2007 at Liverpool Hope University, mm. specialism remained Buddhist studies, but I also brought other interests, religion and conflict, religion and plurality, into religious studies. So I'm now a scholar that has a specialism in one discipline, Buddhist studies, but also work with others. And I also have practical and activist involvements. Um, I moderate or co-moderate a Buddhist-Christian dialogue forum, and I serve on the advisory forum of the Balfour Project, which seeks to educate mm -hmm. people about British responsibility for the um, the dreadful conflict in Israel and Palestine. So that's really how I got where I am. <clears throat> so that's that's a really full account, isn't it? I mean, we've we've learned about you as a Buddhist scholar, as a religious studies scholar, into faith. Um, you're also um, involved in conflict and so on. Um, thank you very much. I mean, I I have actually followed you 
through some of those phases. You know, I have a, remember seeing you um, develop in that way. I want to pick you up on what one of the things you said. Um, you began to talk about the effect of colonialism. And um, I wonder if you could amplify some of those statements. Um, how do you think that colonialism is critical to understanding contemporary interreligious relations? Why do you think it's so critical? Thanks. Yes, it's a good question, Anna. And I think it's critical in the in the whole discourse about decolonizing the curriculum. But um, in terms of just you know my own experience, I I don't argue that European expansionism and empire were the sole causes of contemporary conflicts where religion is implicated. Mm. All that British imperialism um, was completely bad. Um, all that British imperialists did was bad. Um, I have come to see that the consequences of what accompanied imperialism still resonate today in areas where there is inter-ethnic and inter-religious conflict. Mm. So perhaps I could just say something about two factors. The evangelical Protestant Christian missionary activity and population exchange. Um, again, I'll take Sri Lanka as an example. Um, the missionaries who arrived during the British colonial period mainly came with a very exclusivist theology that condemned people of other religions to hell. And the compassionate approach for them, and they did see it as compassion, was conversion, to mm. save souls from hell. Um, the creation of Christian spaces for Christian converts. And one of the ways they worked towards this was accusing Buddhism, for instance, of being irrational, idolatrous, atheistic, ethically impotent, and of being intermixed with the demonic. Now, Buddhists naturally arose in defense, particularly when they saw their children in Christian schools learning these things. And what I called a kind of mutual demonization resulted, with Buddhists throwing at Christianity exactly the same accusations as had been thrown at them by the Christians, or at least by the missionaries, because um, there were other Christians there who were certainly not missionaries and were perhaps much more courteous to Buddhism. And the form of Buddhism that arose um, has been dubbed Protestant Buddhism, and many people listening to this will know the term. Um, Protestant Buddhism, because it both protested against the Protestant missionaries, but also adopted some Protestant methods and tropes. And, and one of these I discovered was a kind of spatial and ideological exclusivism. Um, for instance, the insistence that Buddhist sacred space in the ancient ru ruined capitals like Anuradhapura should not be defiled by any other religion. Mm -hmm. um, some exclusivist attitudes I know existed before colonialism among Buddhists in Sri Lanka, but they, they increased during and after colonialism in response to threats. And certainly extreme exclusivism was actually taken from Protestant Christianity. So to understand some of Buddhist attitudes to Christians and even to Muslims in Sri Lanka today, it's good to know how Buddhists responded to what they saw as the Protestant missionary threat in the 19th century. Mistrust of Christians can easily be stoked up now in Sri Lanka. Um, and there's also animosity towards Muslims, and that's resulted in violence too. Um, of course, there are, are other reasons for these things in colonialism. Um, but methods learnt during the colonial period, period have reappeared in a new context. Um, and 
I've benefited from actually um, studying how this is so. Um, as to population exchange, I'm not an expert in this, but um, let me take Myanmar as an example and the violence against the Rohingya. Um, Rakhine State was called Arakan at the time of British rule, and they annexed it to British India in the 1820s, decades before they conquered other parts of Myanmar. And this resulted in considerable additional migration from Bengal, or what is now Bangladesh, into Arakan. And it gave Arakan a distinctive feel. And the fact that it was kind of split off from the, split off from the rest of kind of colonial Burma um, meant that it, um, it became separate. Um, and I think this sense of Rakhine or Arakan as being separate or almost a different country is still present in Myanmar, um, coupled now with a fear of Islam. And this is not to condone the violence, um, but to throw some light on why so many Burmese people have remained silent, um, i.e. because the kind state is almost seen as other, although in the historical in, in the past it has had quite a lot of quite a link with Buddhism. Um, Akyab, the name um, which is Sitwe now, for instance, yes, that was quite a Buddhist town um, and seaport. Um, but nevertheless, the British changed the demography of Rakhine State, mm -hmm. and that has fed into the conflict now. Um, so the British bear some responsibility, <coughs> and so does colonialism. Mm. Yes, I think there is a sort of defensiveness about Buddhism, isn't there, throughout Myanmar, a desire to protect um, the Buddhist way of life, um, and it's seen as essential to the nation. But Rakhine is also different because there's a sort of double whammy of ethnicity and uh, and also religion. And also, I think we've talked about this before, of land that um, Rakhine people think there is a sort of encroachment on the land. Um, actually, I've been reading quite a lot about um, the um, crisis, in, crisis in the Myanmar and that leads me on to another question, which um, will interest many people who are listening to this podcast. Um, scholars try to be reflexive and understand their own biases. Um, but one of the questions I think we do confront is how far can we be critical of the traditions we're studying? And, and I say this because um, Myanmar has been very much attacked for the flight and, and of the Rohingya to Bangladesh and other neighbouring countries. I don't really want to focus on that, but how, how far should we be, um, how far should we edit out of our work views that we consider controversial or even hateful? How, how far can we actually make a judgment or do we have to remain empathic to all sides in order to um, achieve reconciliation? Again, an incredibly good question. Um, okay, religious studies methodology traditionally has stressed accurate dis description. Um, and the whole discipline developed in order to escape a form of comparative religion that used the, the lenses of Christianity to judge other religions. Um, and there was a 
distinction in developing this discipline, in um, contradistinction to um, theological methods of, of looking at different religions. And there was an aim to be objective, descriptive, yet postmodernism has taught us that totally objective description is almost impossible mm. to escape our biases. Um, when I studied Buddhism in Sri Lanka, I was conditioned by the interests that I brought with me in feminism, in contemplation, in social activism. And this, I came to realize later, influenced what I drew from Buddhism and also influenced the Buddhists I tended to align with and make friendships with. And seeing the violence of the ethnic conflict, I also became critical of forms of Buddhism in Sri Lanka that were nationalistic or exclusivist or denied that the Tamil minor minority had legitimate grievances you know, that should be addressed. I was certainly willing to listen to the more nationalistic Buddhists, but I, I couldn't empathize with them. So at that point, of course, I, wasn't, I was a student. I was not an anthropologist or ethnographer, and my doctoral studies involved archival research, not Buddhist attitudes. My mind could therefore be free. Um, mm. But the, the core question for an academic is how this almost natural process of finding that one, one, that one cannot empathize with some expressions of a particular religion um, should be represented in our writing. Um, and it's a difficult one. So I've kind of adopted three kind of approaches. Um, Self-reflexivity first, of course, mm -hmm. to ask oneself kind of what biases are present due to one's own situatedness, um, what could be skewing and influencing one's judgments. The second um, is to examine the causes of the expressions of religion perhaps one's finding difficult. My study of the effect of colonialism in Sri Lanka has helped me to understand, even if I can't condone, Buddhist nationalism. And I think historical contingencies condition all expressions of religion in the contemporary world. And it's the academic's responsibility to delve into these rather than just to take religions at face value and say, okay, I don't agree with this, I do agree with this, I judge this to be not true to the core or whatever. No, I think we should eschew that kind of approach and rather look at the what has created certain expressions of religion in particular historical contexts and, and study this to kind of, and that can involve um, an empathy to um, the causes and the fruits of those causes, mm. even though um, the fruits might be a nationalism that has caused suffering to others. Mm. Um, and yes, in relation to Sri Lanka, I've, I've um, used one other method, and um, because in my latest monograph, Religion, Space and Conflict in Sri Lanka, Colonial and Post-Colonial Contexts, I've critiqued some aspects of post-war singular Buddhist activity in the um, non-majority Buddhist areas of the North and East. And I've done this, again, through historical analysis and through field work amongst minority communities. So the critique has come partly through the anonymized words of those who fear the latest expressions of Buddhist nationalism in their areas. So the mm. critique is rooted in ethnographic data rather than my own kind of a priori judgments. Um, but um, my belief is that we should not, as academics, 
avoid analyzing facets of religion that provoke tension or conflict or mm. oppose peacemaking. I think this is part of our job, but mm. but we have to empathize with the um, with the nexus of causes and conditions that create these um, expressions of religion. Why do they arise? And then this mm. leads to greater empathy um, and perhaps greater um, greater academic integrity really in our writings well I, th I think that's true I mean I've certainly found that narratives um, say of Myanmar they're often very judgmental partly because Buddhism in the West is often seen to be you know so peaceful isn't it so non-violent so it really stands out and I certainly found in Rakhine that listening to many different voices you you begin to feel that to understand is to forgive in a way which you can't completely go with but i had a lot of sympathy knowing the, the challenges and problems that all the uh, people in conflict were in i mean i wonder if it's that we live in a society which expects people to be pluralist to be multicultural to um, empathize with other religion and then when we go to another country where we hear um, other religions denigrated or felt to be aggressive or hostile um, we we find it quite surprising at least the general public does the media does um, do, you, do you think there's anything in that that we ourselves have gone through quite a sort of journey to get to being more pluralist and more understanding perhaps of different groups within our own society who occupy the same space so there's an expectation that liberal democracy should flourish everywhere mm, yes i think we can go with these expectations in different contexts and sometimes we're, we're caught up short because the the attitudes we find are are different and because the the contexts are so different i mean i don't think all divisions are um at an end in britain i think there are deep roots of um well anti-semitism islamophobia um in britain um yes many people have adopted a more pluralistic attitude and a more tolerant attitude to us being a multi-religious society and we we feel joy that there's a mosque down the road and a good wire down around a few corners and um, a Hindu temple and so on. But you know, you scratch the surface and there's still um, there's still racism that can be linked with religion in 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 the West. I agree it's, with you. I suppose uh, partly the difference might be that we have a legal framework, don't we now, which sort of outlaws hate speech and so it goes underground very often, possibly. But um, Liz, um, we said at the beginning that you combine different scholarly disciplines and we have noticed from what you've said that you have this ethical passion, which I love to create change and to change the world for the better. Um, are there any sort of tensions in combining all these interests? I mean, do you feel that your work sort of interplay sort of juts in on what you're doing as a scholar or 
is it challenging to combine the roles of all, all that you've done, scholar, you're a religious insider to Buddhism and Christianity, really, and an advocate and activist. So how, how do you manage to sort of, it's almost a jigsaw, but how do you combine those different interests? I think there are tensions um, and there are perhaps difficulties in the way perhaps others see me or, um, or perhaps don't know how to see me. Um, but perhaps similar tensions are present in all of us. Um, mm. The complexity of human identity, the different identities that we each have, mm. our different roles in society. And um, I mean, speaking personally, my my own religious belonging has certainly changed through my deep encounter with Buddhism. Um, as you say, I, I straddle two religions. I can say that part of me is Buddhist. It's as though Christianity and Buddhism are in dialogue within me. And I've no problem in living with the kind of paradoxes that can result, the seeming opposites, um, a non-theistic religion, theistic religion and Christianity. I'm not too bothered about these paradoxes because I think there are deeper things that unite the two religions. Um, so, um, one level, yes, I hold two religions within me at a personal level, but I try to avoid my own religious identity affecting my academic work, unless I'm writing more personally about spirituality, and I have occasionally been asked um, to write and speak about these things. Um, but when I'm studying Sri Lanka academically, that kind of side of me doesn't so much come in. Um, I see myself as fairly meticulous in terms of adopting the methods of religious studies. Um, I mean, religious studies is multidisciplinary and it has many, many methods. Um, I certainly go beyond the early emphasis on phenomenology. Um, and from the beginning, religious studies has been driven by ethical considerations. Um, which is not simply um, a descriptive exercise. There was um, a passion to respect the integrity, the diversity, the dynamic nature of different religious traditions and expressions. Um, and I feel that I'm also driven by, by ethics. And um, in the contemporary world, I believe these ethical considerations should include well, facing and examining the ways in which religious traditions have changed through modernity and empire, um, the ways in which they've been influenced by other religious traditions, for good or for bad, um, the ways in which they're implicated in conflict. This should certainly be integral to religious studies. Um, and sometimes religions are, are um, actually studied in little boxes as though they are separate from each other. I don't think in history they've ever been completely separate from each other. They've always been rubbing against each other, defining themselves in, um, in contradistinction to others, being influenced. And um, all of this should be part of our academic work. Um, and all of these emphases, I think, have an activist and an ethical side um, because they relate to how religion has been lived in the past and how it is lived in the present. So I don't really see conflict between writing academically about these aspects of religion and, for instance, actively encouraging greater interreligious understanding, mm -hmm. moderating a dialogue group, or um, you can moderate um, a group 
linked with the churches together in this nylon, an island which looks at um, interfaith theology and that kind of thing. Um, although I'm not a theologian, but um, it's rooted in, in the practicalities of our context. Um, so I think the practical engagement can inform the academic work as long as care is taken to avoid generalizations that are just based on personal experience because mm. academic enterprise is always larger more expansive than just um, personal experience. So um, I'm not afraid to say that I can be at the same time a, an academic with some integrity in religious studies, an activist in interreligious relations, um, activist in some political contexts such as Israel and Palestine um, and Sri Lanka, and, um, and a person who is on her own kind of journey into truth and, and meaning through um, drawing from the wells of different religions and how they were coping with what it means to be human. So, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, Liz, that's fantastic. And I agree with nearly, well, I was going to say nearly all of it. I agree with all of it. I'd just like to, we have one or two more minutes. So I, I know you may not be expecting this, but um, I just wonder how you feel your future is going to, you know, what are your next plans, what are your ambitions, where is your personal journey? Um, I know that's a lot to throw at you suddenly, but um, what are the main goals, objects you have for the next few years, next decade, say? Next decade, right, yes, because after a decade, I'll probably not be in a fit state. <laughs> no, forget <laughs> that. No, of course, live forever. But No, um, I should not be here. But anyway, um, well, at the moment, I'm working on a biography of one of the first British people to become a Buddhist monk, Alan Bennett or Ananda Metea, and that's my immediate goal. And it, yes, it includes Buddhist studies, because I'm a Buddhist monk. It also includes the spiritual searching that went on at the end of the Victorian era and the new religious movements like the Order of the Golden Dawn and esotericism and the impact of esotericism on the reception of Buddhism in the West. Mm. Um, a fascinating area. Mm. When that's complete, yes, um, I mean, I hope to continue my practical involvement and perhaps do more um, on the advisory form of the Balfour Project and to get more um, to increase my knowledge of the whole tension-filled kind of context of Israel and Palestine, um, Jewish views, um, Jewish perceptions, perceptions of the Arabs, Christians, and and Muslims, and so on. To do further on that, and to um, and then to keep the link with Sri Lanka, um, conflict and. Um, fears about human rights abuses still continue in that country and authoritarianism and um, I don't want to lose that link whether I'll write anything further on it is is anybody's guess so I want to keep up that um, those kind of activist involvements with political contexts that are difficult and rhythm with conflict um, also perhaps I want to do a little bit of work on my own Autobiography. I've said I've said quite a lot in this last half hour, but um, I want to make sense of myself as well, Anna, if that's possible. Have you started on your autobiography? You know, are you have you started to write it? This is, no, no, no. This is not 
at all formal and it may not produce anything formal. Um, but I've had I've been so privileged. I've had such a wealth of experience in my different my different posts. Um, I came into academia late, um, and so didn't go the usual route of going right up to professorship and this kind of thing. Although I became an associate professor, but I've done other things that have exposed me to um, kind of the heritage of of religion in the world, but also to some of the dark sides of religion and, and conflict in the world. Liz, that's quite a programme for the future. I shall watch on with interest and thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a delight and a pleasure to listen to you. And thank you so very, very much. It's been a pleasure to talk, <laughs> to have the opportunity, yeah. It's lovely to talk, isn't it, actually? <laughs> thank you. Thank you.